Hiya, Ed here with your friendly reminder to check the show notes for any content warnings related to this episode of the Unbreakable Movie Chain. Also, just in case we've fucked up massively and made any big old spoilers related to any other movies, we'll pop those in the show notes too, so you can consider yourselves fully warned. Thank you, enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Unbreakable Movie Chain. This is the podcast where we have a chat about a movie that we've watched based on a link to the previous episode's film. I'm Madeline Gould and I'm here with Ed Howells. Hey, Ed. Hello. Hiya. <laughs> How's it going? Yeah, good. How are you doing? Yeah, yeah, really well. Really well. Good. What have um, you been up to? What have you been watching? Well, you can be very disappointed in me because uh, I was supposed to have watched Poor Things by now, but I haven't. It's all yeah. right. It's a busy old world we live it in. It is a busy old world. Well, we, we actually we had tickets booked uh, to go and see it last week, but Jem got really sick. Oh, bless her. We didn't go in the end. Yeah, so we we didn't catch that. And as you know, I'm about to go away on tour for... Mm. Um, <laughs> most of the year, it seems. Um, no. <laughs> we decided to spend uh, sort of our last weekend visiting National Trust properties. Oh. And this is something that uh, I want you to remind me of later on in our discussion because yeah. uh, it's going to come up again. Oh, okay. Okay, put that Notice. out there now. <laughs> um, so yeah, National Trust properties. The other thing, what we've been watching actually quite a lot of at home in the last week or so, and mm. I didn't really think about it at the time, but it's interesting considering what we're going to discuss. I've been watching, uh, or re-watching indeed, uh, Parks and Recreation. Ah, um, okay, yeah. Which I adore. Yeah. And I was sitting there watching it the other day and I was like, huh, this for me is what Pleasantville is for David. Ah, It's a warm retreat uh, yeah. into something familiar weirdly i've been watching my equivalent which is uh, dinner ladies oh, with well. victoria wood <laughs> um you know like that the the warm hug of something that you love so dearly that you can probably say every line to yeah. every little bit of it you know it's a gorgeous feeling it's a lovely yeah. thing did the parallel occur to you with uh, with pleasantville no not at all no. <laughs> but now that you've said it i'm like oh yeah no absolutely yeah, yeah i think we all have them um, yeah. we've just done all of father ted <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I love Father Ted so much. It's so gorgeous. <laughs> Big news in our household. Mm. We are we're getting a puppy, and one <laughs> when we were floating names, um, one of the names we thought of was Father Skodo Komodo. <laughs> Sorry, is it Father Spodo? Sp- Father Spodo Komodo. When Mrs Doyle, it's when <laughs> it's in the Christmas episode where um, yeah. Father Ted's getting his Golden Cleric Award, and mm. Mrs Doyle is trying to guess the name of the priest who comes to stay. Oh with God, him. yeah. And she it's... goes on for ages and ages, and there's a bit where she's like, Father, Father Chewy Louie, Father Spodo Komodo. <laughs> yes. I was trying Father to think, what character is that? <laughs> and it is Todd Unctuous, isn't it? It's Todd Unctuous. Yeah. I was like, oh, Father Spodo Komodo is a pretty good name, actually. Uh, full name. <laughs> <laughs> I did go and see Poor Things. Yes. Uh, Would you like to tell me about it? I absolutely think that it will divide people. I think there'll be people who really hate it and I can understand why. But I absolutely loved it. 
I'm uh, as I saw someone say on Instagram I'm prepared to make it my entire personality (laughs) (laughs) absolutely everything about it it's so good it's so funny it is it is deftly handled it's Mm. fucking marvelous it is an absolute marvel I cannot recommend it highly enough to people and people like I say you'll you might hate it I would Mm. say do watch the trailer because that does give you a fairly good idea of what it's like tonally throughout but it is it is a thing of real beauty and wonder and awe and uh, i went with richard and we went and it was a packed cinema basically sold out the whole cinema was so into it we were all laughing together we applauded at the end it was a really special like gorgeous experience and i've just found out that there's been an exhibition of all the costumes on in london ending i think on the 26th of january we're recording this on the 24th of january and i'm absolutely furious that i missed it because the costumes are unbelievable Mm. they are a thing of true beauty like if they release a book about the costumes i'll buy the book because they are fucking amazing it's great one of the things that i love about it as well the accent work is fairly strange but I think it's deliberate because the accent where it's so funny and it's so part of everything. It's it's kind of rolled up in this aesthetic that the whole film has got. So yeah. you could look at it and go, Mark Marmaflow is doing a really ropey English accent. But I think it's deliberate. I think it's part of the kind of fop character that he's playing. Mm. And it's just wonderful. So yeah, highly recommend. That's Excellent. the only thing I've been to see in the cinema. Um, we've just been watching Dinner Ladies, like I say. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm uh, yeah, really, really looking forward to Poor Things and have been for quite some time. All I will say, though, is that we all know what happened the last time you uh, came on the podcast with a movie that you were this excited about having seen. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's more chance that you'll like this. Okay. But you never know. For anybody know, who Ed, hasn't caught our salt burn discussion. Just when... listen to the past six months worth of episodes because it's been going on for quite a long time. I will say, just in addition to the great salt burn discussion, mm. my mum loved it. Did she? She did love it. Excellent. She rang me up and she was all excited. And I would have said that my mum would have hated salt burn. So there you go. Yeah, no, I wouldn't have expected your mum to enjoy Saltburn. Saltburn, it's one of those films that you wouldn't be able to predict who would like, who would go for it and who wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, yeah. you know, there are a lot of films where I look at it and I'm like, oh yeah, no, this is an Ed Howells kind of a film. Mm-hmm. Or like, um, Ed would hate this. Um, yeah. Saltburn, I thought you'd really love it. So. Yeah, no, and to be honest with you, I can understand exactly why you would think it would be my cup yeah, of tea. Yeah, yeah. It just rubbed me just up the didn't. wrong way. No, it's it, it was a strange one because it was there's so much about it that yeah, I it should be the sort of film that I love and champion. Hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It got my back. That's up. all right though. It's a subjective <laughs> art form. It certainly is, as we discovered last week. <laughs> yeah, last week. <laughs> well, um, let's come on to chat about the film that we're going to talk about today. I've got my fighting gloves on this week. I, I don't feel like I defended the Wizard of Oz nearly robustly enough. So I got my fighting gloves on this week. I love the film we're talking about, and if you hate it, then <laughs> we can have words. <laughs> well, fortunately for you, Ed, I absolutely love it. So we're going to be all right. It's going to be one of our shameless just lovings we're gonna pile in and absolutely adore this film um this week we're talking about pleasantville which we chose i say we i chose um off the back of watching the wizard of oz which we discussed in our last episode please do catch up on that if you want to hear me be grumpy (laughs) for a couple of hours uh yeah the link there was um the use of black and white and technicolor as a storytelling device but first of all ed it's time for our synopsis fantastic um and i am insisting that you stop me when we hit that 
time limit. Okay, right. So yeah, we've been having a discussion since the podcast started about what we should do when when the synopsis comes and we go over our time. Um, the way that we, just to, a reminder for listeners, um, we time the synopsis based on the runtime of the film itself. So for example, Pleasantville is 124 minutes long. Uh, that gives Ed 124 seconds to do his synopsis. That works out at two minutes and four seconds. Previously, we've kind of just gone, ha ha, you went over. But mm. we are getting to a stage where we need to start imposing some proper rules. Yeah, when these synopsis is, is, uh, start going five or six minutes, when it's supposed to, to be rein that in. two. Uh, yeah, we need to rein that in. So we're going to get tight on this. We're going to get strict. Yeah. We are going to get strict. So just for the time being, we're going to just stop each other. Um, but we are accepting recommendations for things we could do, like imposing penalties and fines and rewards and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, we've had some fantastic suggestions from listeners so far, but I would love to hear some more. So please do get in touch with us through our social medias or our email address to let us know about those. And me and Ed will have a chat and work out which one we're going to do. But mm-hmm. for the meantime, you've got two minutes and four seconds. That's 124 seconds. Are you ready? Yes. Three, two, one, go. Okay, once upon a time, there were two high school students. They are David and Jennifer. They are twins. One of them is from the cool side of the uterus. The other very much is not. Um, (laughs) Jennifer wants to watch a concert with a hot guy from school. David wants to watch the Pleasantville Marathon. Pleasantville is a sitcom from the 1950s that David is somewhat obsessed with. He wants to watch the marathon of that. She wants to watch the concert. They get into a tussle. Oh, they break the remote control. Ah, oh dear. Ding dong, the doorbell rings. Oh, there's a TV repairman has just shown up out of the blue because he heard the TV was busted. He gives them a special uh, remote control, but not until he's tested David on his knowledge of Pleasantville. The TV repairman goes away and they have a tussle over the new special remote control and they end up inside Pleasantville. Everybody is now black and white. And indeed, it is very pleasant. Uh, everybody's very sort of lovely to each other. It's very homely. It's those sort of classic American values where a healthy breakfast is a plate full of eggs and waffles and pancakes on top of the waffles and bacon on top of that and syrup all over it. This is the world we're inhabiting. Um, everybody has like, there, there are no double beds. Everybody, you know, they, they sleep in twin beds, the married couples in their rooms. It's I can't think what the word is. And as we're being timed, I'm just going to move on. Um, <laughs> you get what I'm saying. 30 seconds left. 30 seconds left. Okay. So uh, very quickly, they uh, unintentionally and a little bit intentionally change the world around them and the world around them changes them. Little splashes of colour come into play. Um, the basketball team can't shoot straight anymore. And then there are riots happen because there is discontent within the city. Uh, there is also a love triangle between uh, the parents of the characters in the show and the guy who owns the diner, uh, played by Jeff Daniels. And that's sort of the emotional heart of the movie really in the end jennifer stays in pleasantville and david goes back home Three, to console two, their mother one <laughs> there you go i'm just showing you two minutes and four oh, there, you there go. we go <laughs> ed before we crack on with our chat please would you take us through some housekeeping yeah so pleasantville from 1998 directed and written by gary ross um his first success was as the writer of Big, uh, starring Tom Hanks. He uh, he also wrote the screenplay for Dave, which is a Kevin Klein movie, sort of based yeah. loosely on The Prince and the Pauper. Um, he went on to direct the first Hunger Games film as well, uh, for which he also wrote the adaptation. Which is cracking. I love the Hunger Games films. I think they're really good. I, I really like that first one particularly. 
Yeah, um, yeah, they yeah. They sort of taper off a little bit for me towards the end. But yeah, I think I think they're they're strong throughout. But that first yeah, one yeah. particularly, I really like. I'm quite excited for Gary Ross's uh, forthcoming directorial feature. He's adapted uh, East of Eden. And I'm a big John Steinbeck fan, so really looking forward to that. The cinematography is provided by John Lindley. A couple of interesting credits. So he, from this, went on to be the cinematographer on um, the Nicole Kidman, Will Ferrell adaptation of Bewitched, which obviously uh, the original How series Bewitched, a very sort of classic American sitcom, mm. uh, not too dissimilar to Pleasantville. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other credit of his that I wanted to highlight was Father of the Bride, because we've got a little connection here to The Bad and the Beautiful. Oh, right. Um, so he was the cinematographer on the uh, Steve Martin Father of the Bride. The original Father of the Bride was uh, directed by Vincenti Minnelli back in 1930, whatever that was, when that first came out. I love that. Strengthening the chain. There, Strengthening Ed, the you. chain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the editor on it is William Goldberg. Uh, he won an Oscar for his work on Argo. I love Argo. Yeah, Argo's, Argo's great. We've got to cover Argo at some point. So his first credit as an editor was on the survival slash cannibal movie Alive. Oh, blimey. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's he's gone on to do some great things. Um, he, yeah, he edited Heat, which I know you're a big fan of. Oh yeah, I love it. It's one of my absolute favourite films. <laughs> I love um, it almost as much as I love The Wizard of Oz, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which, would, which would you sit through again? The Wizard of Oz or Heat? Heat. Yeah, I thought, really? Heat over The Wizard of Oz? It's so much yeah. longer. Yeah, it's longer, but um, it's less grating. <laughs> sure. The, the, the songs don't get stuck in your head. No. <laughs> Apart from that one Al Pacino does um, just before the big climax at the end I do and you love know the Pacino duet number. they do the, du- the duet they do in the diner in the diner yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is what that film's missing that is absolutely what that film's missing I think that might um, make it more interesting to me <laughs> Uh, a couple of other just to sort of highlight the diversity of William Goldberg's CV um, there are quite sort of low-key dramas like Gone Baby Gone and Detroit on there but also several Transformers movies and the National Treasure movies as well so ah. could go all sorts of directions with him uh, production design is provided by Janine Opperwall. So, uh, so she shared an Oscar nomination with Jay Hart, who was the set decorator on this. And yeah, so her CV includes things like LA Confidential, Catch Me If You mm. Can, um, Primal Fear, which I know is one of your favourites. Yeah, I love Primal Fear. He also shared an Oscar with Hannah Beachler for Black Panther quite recently. Other credits of his include Fight Club, uh, Punch Drunk Love and Phenomenon. Punch Drunk Love is one of your favourites, isn't it? Uh, I wouldn't describe it as a favourite. Um, I've only seen it. I've only seen it the once, I think, but I liked it. Do you know what I might might be thinking of mm. i think the poster for punch drunk love is quite similar to the poster for pleasantville and maybe oh, is, i'm yeah. thinking of pleasantville <laughs> <laughs> quite possibly yeah um, i know um a minor digression i know uh, punch drunk love mark kermode um rates that as paul thomas anderson's best movie yes he does doesn't he and, and punch drunk love is um adam sandler and um emily watson isn't it it's definitely adam sandler is it emily watson she's one of my absolute faves i love her i'd watch her do anything sorry carry on uh, no of course um so the art director uh, william arnold worked with janine opperwall on things like la confidential and primal, primal fear also the bridges of madison county and he was production designer on punch drunk love working with jay hart so a couple of different links yeah. in the team there the set designer is diane wager <laughs> she's got an incredible cv uh, going back to the 60s, where she worked on the uh, Adam West Batman series as set Amazing. designer on that. She was uncredited doing that. Also on Heat, uh, Volcano, 
and uh, and Spaceballs. Volcano, one of those uh, amazing disaster movies. Uh, the the 90s disaster movies, they're, they're not my... Not my bag at all. Uh, I'm afraid I have to disagree with you. I fucking love a 90s disaster movie. It's one of my favourite things. (laughs) The costume designer is uh, Juliana Matowski, who costumed big. Possibly might have met Gary Ross at that time. Uh, She also provided costumes for The Quick and the Dead, which is one of my favourites. It's one of my absolute favourite films of all time ever, Ed. The Quick and the Dead. My God. Wonderful. It's got... (laughs) everything (laughs) it really does um oh if that's what we're watching next week i'm gonna send you a present (laughs) well we'll see we'll see um (laughs) uh, she also costumed the uh, so she's got a real line of kind of superhero type big blockbuster things that she costumes now so she did the hunger games uh, she did the first harry potter movie she did captain america i think the first avengers she did the avengers and she did guardians of the galaxy so yeah she's big in that world now and the music is provided by Randy Newman who uh, yeah, did the score um, now my first encounter with Randy Newman uh, was as the composer and songwriter on Toy Story prior to that he was known broadly as a songwriter you know sort of quite quirky uh, fun songs like short mm. people that sort of thing but in fact he has been a composer for film and TV since the 70s so his first film composition was in 1971 on a film called Cold Turkey yeah he's also provided uh, scores for things like uh, meet the parents and uh, and meet the fuckers <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and yeah he's been a big sort of pixar mainstay as well um so yeah bugs life he wrote for mm. and uh, toy story movies as i mentioned and also the monsters inc movies when were we discussing the fact that randy newman is from like a he's actually from like a film dynasty i don't know that we ever discussed that have we not i hope i didn't dream that i'll need to fact check um yeah so he yeah he is from a film composing sort of dynasty and um, three of his uncles um, and four of his cousins are composers for films. And he's done... I mean, my God, I didn't realise. Well, he wrote songs for Cilla Black. He wrote the song Mama Told Me Not To Come. He did, yes, I'd forgotten that. And You Can Leave Your Hat On, which is one of my favourite songs ever. He's done loads of stuff for Disney. He did the uh, James and the Giant Peach animation that I know we're both big fans yeah. of. And, God, that fucking insipid, awful film that I've seen so many times for some reason, Seabiscuit. <laughs> Have you seen it? Well, that's that's a Gary Ross film. I know. I, I, I was really <laughs> surprised. And I was like, I don't know why I saw it. I think I saw it multiple times in the cinema. I think it must have mm. been like the only thing that was on. And I was going to the cinema as a teenager, possibly to hold hands with boys rather than sure. to um, actually watch movies. And for some reason, we ended up seeing Seabiscuit loads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have not seen Seabiscuit. I remember it coming out and I was quite excited for it because I'll tell you what it was. I liked Pleasantville a lot. I also mm-hmm. um, liked American Beauty a lot and Chris Cooper yeah. is in Seabiscuit. Uh, so I was, I was really keen for that and I didn't see it and everything I heard about it was, oh, you don't really want to. And so I never did. It's kind of, um, it's Oscar bait for sure. Bleary. I was going to say Vaseline on the lens, but that's porn, isn't it? It's not porny. It's not a porny horse film. <laughs> no, Vaseline on the lens is, is sort of soft focus and... I do mean that then. Yeah, you do mean that. <laughs> I mean, it, 
it can it, i think it has been used in those sort of late night channel five movie contexts. sure let's move on from that shall we <laughs> yes let's anyway so the uh cast uh we've got Toby Maguire plays David slash Bud. Um, this is Toby Maguire in his just pre-Spider-Man days, and you really mm. see why he was cast as Peter Parker, particularly in those early scenes. We've got Reese Witherspoon playing Jennifer and Mary Sue. Jeff Daniels as Bill Johnson. Joan Allen as Betty Parker. William H. Macy as George Parker. J.T. Walsh, um, who uh, is actually, this is a posthumous credit. He died before it was released. Mm. Uh, he plays Big Bob, the mayor of the town. Also, the uh, the late Paul Walker plays Skip Martin. We know him from The Fast and the Furious. Well, I, thinking, I t- it took me hmm? ages. I was like, that guy, who's that guy? guy from? <laughs> Who is that guy? <laughs> I mean, we, we, we could be watching The Fast and the Furious next week. I'd love that. I've never seen any of them. <laughs> Neither have I. <laughs> I would love to do The Fast and the Furious franchise. That would make me really happy. <laughs> uh, I mean, we'd, we'd have to take it one at a time, I think. The whole franchise might be a bit much for me. Well, seeing as we're now on Fast 10, your seatbelts. I know we're on that now. Um <laughs> We've got, anyway, uh, the rest of the cast, we've got Marley Shelton, plays Margaret Henderson. Uh, Jane Kaxmarek, uh, also known as uh, Mrs. Malcolm in the Middle, plays David and Jen's mother. Don Knotts as the TV repairman. This is a particularly mm. canny bit of casting. I think not only is he great in that, but he's also a guy who made his name on sitcoms like this. So he made his name on the Andy Griffith show and then went on to do Three's Company a little bit later. Also, uh, eagle-eyed fans of Buffy will spot Riley and Jonathan making up the numbers. Uh, that's Mark Blucas and Danny Strong, respectively. They're credited as the basketball hero and jukebox boy it was made for a budget of 60 million and took at the box office just 49.8 million so a bit of a loss there it received three oscar nominations for art direction and set decoration costume and the original score and that has been housekeeping thank you thank you (laughs) our house is as tidy as the parker's house in pleasantville bick and span Watching it through this time, I got really emotional. I found mm-hmm. it very, very moving. I I really love this film. I'm really glad I picked it. <laughs> I'm very grateful to past me. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think it is very moving. I think it could tip over into sentimentalism, which is, I think, yeah. from what I understand, the mistake that Gary Ross made on Seabiscuit yeah. um, is that it, it's schmaltzy. And this could tip over into schmaltzy, but it, I don't think it does. I think it, yeah. it walks that Spielberg line. Absolutely. And I think it manages to represent a lot of stuff that could both be very schmaltzy, but also could be really, really dark, really sinister, really menacing, really thorny. And actually, he manages to tread a really good line um, in representing some of those thornier issues, but actually not making it too pointed and too like shouty, mm-hmm. which is weird because for a film that is lacking in a lot of subtlety, <laughs> it's mm. actually very subtle. <laughs> It is. It, Do you yeah, know what I mean? So I think it's like clearly there are metaphors and allegories, but I think you can, like the, like the best works of art, you can look at it and see it in a, a whole bunch of different ways. You can take it as a metaphor for, for racism. You can talk about, there's a whole sort of uh, biblical allegory that you can talk about. I mean, with, with, mm. with the town of Pleasantville being the Garden of Eden and then knowledge disrupting and causing a lot of damage. The original sin, I mean, she gives, there's a, a, the girl gives David an apple at one point 
to bite into. Yeah. And that is, that's original sin quite pointedly to anybody who knows. But it, it, in addition to it causing a lot of hurt and upset, mm. actually it opens their world out and adds colour to their world at the same time. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing that I wanted to ask really is if this film has a thesis, if it's trying to say something, mm-hmm. what do we think that is? What is it, what is it saying? Mm. I think it's something to do with embracing change, whether that is societal change mm. or whether that is internal change. The characters in this film have to embrace that it's also about not hiding who you are and i think particularly when you look at jennifer's arc at the start we've got reese witherspoon in kind of mean girls mode at high school yeah there's there's a wonderful line where one of her friends says i can't believe you're related to him and she says i know here but like i know my parents side um (laughs) she's she's great isn't she reese witherspoon bloody love her she's never bad she's so great she's so joyful everything that she does that could be like mean like you say mean girl but she isn't ever threatening and she's never everything has got like a playful and a lightness and a whenever she's on screen i'm like great i'm in safe hands yeah she 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 draws you to her doesn't she she's so watchable whatever she's doing yeah so if we if we look at her arc from the start where she's in this kind of mean girl mode. And then when they land in Pleasantville, she sort of tries to do that some more. And she changes the girls at the school there in Pleasantville. So they start using modern slang and stuff. And then she introduces sex into this world. She's more active in changing the world than David is. Uh, we'll talk about how David changes the world because that's there's a different thing going on with him. Um, she's more sort of intentional about the changes that she makes. Mm. Uh, Oh, I'm not sure I agree with you there. I think that both her and David represent a different type of change. Mm -hmm. And the, the change that Jennifer kind of insights is inflammatory kind of headline grabbing scary stuff mm-hmm. that is much more obvious there is a direct cause and effect whereas the change that David is making is much more subtle and layered mm-hmm. and thoughtful and considered and Jennifer's change is the stuff that they're outraged about in City Hall yes. whereas David's change is like the point of the film do you know what I mean? Yes I, yes, I do yeah that's, that's sort of what I was trying to get at but yeah. less eloquently than you put it <laughs> oh. <laughs> I wouldn't call that eloquent. <laughs> and so she's trying to sort of still do that mean girl thing, but almost immediately she finds herself in the library and she sort of brushes it off as ah, I got lost. Yeah, but while you were there, you looked in a book. And also later on, oh, she claims uh, she read Huckleberry Friend years ago and so she forgot most of it, but but she remembered enough to half fill the books when the books fill up. Yeah. So she, this whole time at school, has been concealing her true self. She's been hiding and it, there's a sort of a fear of being ostracised, I think, at heart. Yeah. I, think there's a re- I think one of the important themes of the film is actually is a rejection of fear. And it's most obvious with David because mm. uh, he is afraid of everything. He's afraid of the world. Yeah. Whereas yeah, Jennifer yeah. is afraid of being ostracised. And she decides that actually she doesn't want to go out with the hot boy. She'd rather stay in and finish the book she's reading. And that is when she um, turns from black and white to colour. When she makes yeah. that decision to stop hiding who she actually is. The film sort of, it sets you up thinking that the, the change from black and white to colour is a kind of embracing of hedonism. Mm-hmm. It's to do with succumbing to something that 
would consider be considered sinful in some way mm-hmm. um it's having sex or whatever but actually it isn't to do with that at all it's to do with a spark that connects you to your authentic self yes. and discover the discovery of that i can't remember the name of the character but jeff daniel's character mm. the fact that he's painted her in the nude is the thing that gets everyone riled it's not his use of color it's not all of this other stuff it's the nudity and the kind of sin thing mm. and it's like they can't see past uh, th- that kind of initial outrage. I think it is the fact of the colour as well though. I think it is the colour that inflames them just as much as the content mm. because these people want to want to hold on to what they've got and they want to keep everything exactly as it is um, and actually th- this is why I wanted to bring up the National Trust. Oh okay So uh, Jim and I at the weekend uh, we visited uh, three National Trust properties. How lovely. Well, yeah it was really lovely. How wholesome of us. It's such a great institution. I, I love the National Trust I don't know if you read about this in the news uh, uh, last year there were um, there mm. were elections national trust elections and there was a group of people uh, yeah I'm not, I'm not going to actually say what they're called because fuck these people they tried to hijack the National Trust through the elections essentially they were trying to reject any mention of uh, sort of the murkier parts of Britain's history um, so one of the properties we visited there, there was some mahogany furniture in one of the rooms and there was a sign outlining uh, the the origin of mahogany furniture in Britain and how connected to slavery it was uh, yeah and all, all of that sort of stuff anyway these people who were trying to hijack the National Trust last year they were trying to get rid of all of that right all of that stuff highlighting the, the dark parts of our history just to keep everything yeah. nice and pleasant and as rose tinted as possible and you know our glorious empire and all that shit oh god that makes yeah. me so uncomfortable there oh. are some other unsavory things they wanted to do regarding uh, sort of they, they're not all that keen on welcoming gay people into the fold and all that sort of thing okay well, so yeah. a, a right bunch of wrongins is what we can say uh, yes yeah anybody listening who's a member of the National Trust when the elections come around please vote and please make sure you know who you're voting for <laughs> that's quite good advice just for upcoming elections of any kind I well indeed so i was thinking about pleasantville when i was looking at that uh, at the time because mm. that's what so many of the people in the town want to do is keep everything black and white they don't they don't want to know what's at the other end of main street and when those little splashes of color come in that's what inflames it. oh there was a green car outside the diner real green yeah real green it's it's that thing about you can either be consistent and numb or you can open yourself up to feeling but in doing so you can't just feel the positive you're going to feel the sting of the negative as well and so they you know the kind of the status quo of Pleasantville is to is to remain numb because then you don't open yourself up to the risk of being hurt mm-hmm. but you are also then blocking off the potential for all of the positive stuff yes. um, of human experience and so it's it's that question of whether you would rather have that or not but what one of I think the kind of core questions of the film is is the people who want to remain numb can remain numb if they want Mm -hmm. to but they don't have a right to force other people to be numb when they want to feel something it's the threat to the right to choose and it's the the threat of people who want to dictate how everybody live their life and it made from that point of view it made me feel really emotional the scene that really got me was when they were burning books Mm. and i was thinking about 
book bans that are happening around the world right now and how sickening that is and actually I think it's a really timely film I think it's evergreen I think I think the, absolutely the themes inside it they will continue to be relevant it's a, it's a deeply empathetic film as well I think mm. it has empathy for all of its characters including its yeah. antagonists there's uh, that wonderful scene um, between David and George in the jail after so David gets arrested George and they sit there and yeah David says um, people change uh, George says can they change back and David says I don't know I think it's harder and then George says it's not fair you know you get used to one thing his whole world at that point is shattered we'll come on to that moment yeah I'd, I'd, mm. I'd, I'd like to chat about the, that sort of that love triangle separately let's chat about yes. David first have we uh, yeah. chat about Jen oh so um, yeah so at the end of Jennifer's arc she decides to stay in Pleasantville go yeah. off to college and she says to David what, what what chance have I got of getting into college at home she says um, oh yeah I've done the slut thing mm. and it got old I love that line and maturing, it's gorgeous. It's so wonderful. I think that that's a really pleasing arc for her. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, on a practical level, how David is going to explain the total disappearance of his sister to their mother. I'm not sure. You we know, don't need to see that. No, we don't. It's, it's The film starts with Once Upon a Time. Mm-hmm. That's what pops up on the screen at the start. It is a fairy tale. And I don't think the magic needs to be dissected too much. Well, that was one thing. I I was turning myself inside out trying to work out what is this Mm -hmm. organisation of small old TV repairmen who were going around and... (laughs) implanting modern teenagers into 1950s sitcoms. And I was like, actually, that's ruining it. Yeah. In in the same way, you can't delve too deeply into the magic in big mm-hmm. or think too hard yeah. about it because it's a, it is exactly like you say, it's a fairy tale. Yeah. And from that point of view, I suppose you can look at it as having like a kind of fairy tale structure. Yeah, they, they go into the woods, don't they? Yeah, they do. Well, it's interesting because yes, both of them are changed massively, but they are also the ones who are propelling the change forward for everybody else yeah it's a very modern and american fairy tale much like the wizard of oz yeah we, yeah it's it's an interesting film to compare to the wizard of oz actually in 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 those terms it's because it's a yeah it's a mm. similar thing it's yeah somebody being transplanted from their home into a fantasy world um it's a, a fantasy world that is more recognizable to them perhaps than oz is to dorothy but it is unquestionably a fantasy you know it's a it's a land where the basketball team scores every time they shoot from wherever you shoot. I love that scene. <laughs> I love that kind of initial bit where they, they get sort of teleported into Pleasantville and there's the kind of, the little section of like, how does everything work here? David can't not score. He throw, he kicks it at the wall and it bounces round and yeah. all of that stuff. And that's fantastic because we get a little, a kind of a sweep of the town and we get to see the status quo so that then when they start to affect change, mm. it's really, they can do it really subtly. Like I love that one of the first things that happens is Jennifer and Skip go on their date to Lover's Lane, have sex, which mm-hmm. I, I love Paul Walker's performance during this whole <laughs> He's session. He's great, isn't he? He's fantastic. And then when he drops her off and he just drives home really slowly mm. with that look on his face. Yeah. Um, and he see, and that's the first little flash of colour that he sees the red in the red rose. He goes in and tells all the football team, all the basketball team about what's happened to him and none of them can score. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to 
talk, if I can, just for a moment about what you were saying about it being kind of biblical in that respect. Like you say, there's that wonderful moment where David is on his date with Margaret and um, she offers him some blueberries out of a handkerchief and then she runs off and picks a beautiful red apple Mm -hmm. from the tree and gives it to him. And it's a very clear reference to the temptation of Adam, yeah. the fall of man. I don't know if you know this about me, Ed, but I'm really into the idea of satanic feminism. I mean, I didn't know that specifically, but that doesn't surprise me. I won't go into it massively in depth. There is a fantastic book, if anyone is interested in this whole idea, uh, by a guy called Per Faxnells, and he wrote this book called Satanic Feminism. It's basically about how the fall of man, the temptation of Eve, and then the temptation of Adam is all to do with women sinning and it all being awful and terrible and getting kicked out of Eden's real really shit Mm -hmm. but actually the satanic view on that is that actually um, the eating of the apple and everything is a liberation from ignorance and all of that so that's what this is and I think that that Pleasantville is absolutely telling us that story this Mm -hmm. thing of like yes it is a transgression but it is actually it is a choice not to live in ignorance it's a choice to well that ignorance is bliss thing right Mm -hmm. and they're saying no ignorance is not bliss human experience is bliss human connection human experience stories all of this stuff that is bliss and it is it's dangerous because you can't control that and that's part of what the kind of the status quo the people at the town hall that's part of what they're frightened of is that they can't control this i appreciate that he is obviously he's the one that that is offered the apple but in a way he's kind of the snake david is sort of wandering around Uh, this Eden, this Mm. paradise of Pleasantville, planting seeds in people's head. Mm. And yeah, Reese Witherspoon is doing it too. Really, she just, she has sex and she explains the concept of sex to her mother, but she isn't nearly as widespread in her influence as David is, because David is more, I would say he affects more people. I I don't know. So Reese Witherspoon, when she gets to the school and she makes friends with the people in the school, well, she's like, can we do better first? And Dave's like, mm, yeah, not I really, love that not. line. It's so funny. <laughs> um, so she makes friends with these uh, with these other girls who they're just so wonderful, sort of giggly high school girls. Every time you see them, there's like three of them, and they just run around together giggling. It's very funny. And they've all got the same cardigan <clears throat> got on. The and same it's cardigan, like... yeah. Yeah, yeah well, da- uh, da- David says they're happy, and, and Jennifer says, "No, David, no, nobody's happy in a poodle skirt and a sweater set." <laughs> 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 but she gets them talking different. She gets them yeah. saying all cool and stuff. And yeah, 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 she's the one who decides to introduce the idea of sex. I think David is doing something different. So David, as I, as I mentioned at the start of the film, David is terrified of life and the mm. world. And it's it's justified. You get that little montage at the start of the classes that he's sitting through, where he's being told about all sorts of disasters in the world, uh, the dangers of sex and just, yeah, everything is terrible. And then uh, he gets him and he's the one who's got more connection to their mother. Yes. I think, I think uh, Jennifer just sort of does her own thing. Um, so they're from a broken home and then their mother is having a really hard time and she's seeing some bloke and she's going off for the weekend um, and leaving the two of them to just fend for themselves because their father can't be asked to come and get involved. So, yeah, when you first meet her, she's having an argument on the phone with their father and David yeah. is there turning Pleasantville up on the TV to sort of drown it out, literally using this TV show that 
he loves to drown out the noise of his life that he has to deal with. So, yeah, and if, when you first meet him, he is then that I'm, I'm sure he does as Peter Parker as well. I'm sure there's a bit in Peter Parker where he's yeah, sort of yeah, practicing yeah. asking out Mary Jane. Yeah, and he's, do, he's doing the same thing here in Pleasantville like two or three years earlier. But So when he gets to Pleasantville, he knows this place and understands the place. He doesn't want to be there either, really. Like Dorothy, yeah. he gets to this incredible fantasy world but immediately wants to get home again, which is interesting because you'd think, I mean, he uses Pleasantville as a kind of an escape and in Pleasantville he is drawn to the stuff that he doesn't have in his life, which is the seeming stability and the kind of sexlessness of his parents and stuff. Whereas Mm. his mum's sex life is right in his face. She's going off with this man for a raunchy weekend. And there's stuff that he's missing that Pleasantville seems to be able to offer him. But Pleasantville is a totally fake dream. It's like a false promise. But it's interesting how quickly he realises that and how quickly he also wants to get home. But he's desperate to do nothing to disrupt the environment. So he keeps saying to Jen that they can't do anything to change anything. They've got to keep things as pleasant as he can. So the first change he makes is with Bill, played by Jeff Daniels. Between him and William H. Macy and Joan Allen, the three of them deliver a masterclass of pathos. The three of them break my heart in different ways. It's so wonderful. So David goes to work at the diner where he arrives late and that is the first change that he makes. And it's it's sort of unavoidable because he didn't get there on time. He wasn't doing anything in particular mm. to be to make himself late. It was just actually real life isn't that you get to a place on time always. And so he gets there and Bill's just sort of wiping the counter and to the point that he's wiped the paint off the counter because he just didn't know what to do because they've got a routine about turning the lights on and he fills the thing up and he turns the fry machine on and he, you know. So that's the first change he makes. And then the second change he makes is in that basketball scene that starts off with everybody sinking their shots and it being perfect. But then... Uh, Skip Martin comes up to him, played by Paul Walker, and says that he wants to ask out Jen, who is at this point Mary Sue. So David is Bud at this point, and Jen is Mary Sue. So Skip wants to ask out Mary Sue. And David, in his desperation to keep everything pleasant and safe and not fuck up the environment, says, no, I don't think you should do that. And it's, uh, yeah, whoa, suddenly there is a negative in this environment suddenly something is wrong and then Skip takes well he doesn't even take a shot does he he furiously throws the ball and it doesn't go in the basket and that's the first shot that has ever been missed in Pleasantville that's the first time a ball has not gone in that basket Um, and it just sort of it hits the floor and the whole place goes completely silent and the ball just rolls across the floor and the the coach says guys come here guys don't touch it stay back And they're all looking at it like it's this alien object, like it's a bomb or something. It is like he set a bomb off. It is in exactly that room when like that, that happens. Yeah, I think that the first few changes that he makes, he does it by accident and he regrets it. But I think that he there comes a moment where he makes a choice not to start actively making changes, but he makes a choice that interfering isn't such a bad thing. And I think it's when he opens the door to Jeff Daniels as Bill. Bill, who has turned up on the doorstep. I love this moment where he's like... Mm. Oh yeah, normally you're there because you turn the blinds down and I turn the light off and and then we both lock up together and you weren't there. So I did it all on my own and he is so elated. (laughs) And that's when David clocks the look between Betty and Bill and he sees that there's something going on there. And I think that's the moment when he's like, oh, stuff is happening below the surface of this place Mm. that needs to 
come out that needs to be released? I don't think he's entirely sold at that moment. Interesting, um, yeah. Because okay. I think it's after that when he goes to the diner again and Bill's there with the art books. He, talk, he talks about how he loves painting the window at Christmas time and then how he was thinking that, you know, isn't it silly that I wait all year for this thing that I love? And David says, uh, I don't think that's something you should really be thinking about anymore. So yeah, I, d- I don't think David's quite sold at that moment, uh, but certainly mm. that's an important bump in the road. I think it's a little bit later that David decides that interfering is is okay. I think it's in that scene between him and and Betty, um, Joan Allen, with the makeup, which we'll come on to. So yeah, the the rest of David's art, he does come to decide that being a more active participant is important. So the moment that he changes colour is an interesting one. It's when some of the black and white boys are chasing Betty around. Betty is now in colour. I can't, I can't remember exactly what prompts it, but David punches one of these guys and then the next shot you see of him he's in color and i think i think that's to do with rejecting fear i think both he and uh, jennifer when they change color they have rejected fear i love that in in one way or another and jennifer's kind of visual representation of that moment is um when she puts the glasses on when it's like i I don't need to worry about presenting the image of coolness because i need glasses to read and what i want to do is read and when skip comes and calls for her she says no i'm not coming out that is a, a clear decision and she um she puts on her sweater yeah because she says earlier you know who wants to wear a kind of a sweater set Mm. and then she puts it on because she's cold and when you compare that to earlier on because she was going to have this date with the hot guy from school back in the real world and when when they first get to pleasantville they're sort of begging the repair guy to send them back and Mm. she's like i've got a date coming right now and she gets shown footage on the tv of her date arriving and like ringing the doorbell and nobody answering and he just walks away saying bitch which is her worst fear yeah i think when you compare that to her saying no skip i'm not coming out tonight she's rejecting that fear that she has held yeah yeah i love that Shall we talk a little bit then about those three actors who, I mean, I absolutely adore the stuff with the teenagers. It's great. But for me, yeah, the beating heart of this whole film and the the thing that plugs into what for me is the kind of central message and the main point of the film happens with that love triangle of, um, of Betty, Bill and George. Oh my God. Joan Allen, what a fucking revelation. Do you know what I mean? Like, to me, she's just the wife in face off. <laughs> and to watch her do this, I'm like, my God. Yeah. She's absolutely heartbreaking in this film. She's so good. She delivers, well, arguably the greatest masturbation scene in cinema history. It is fantastic. I would l- love to be able to set a tree on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Um. it's great each of them deliver a moment that to me is just like so for her obviously yeah she's got her masturbation scene she's got various other scenes the scene where George is calling to her to come and bring that special pineapple thing that she does um, and she's just at the sink silently crying because she's she's turned colour Let, let's let's go back to the beginning of, of her arc yeah when we first meet her she is cosy 1950s sitcom mum she's the mum that David wishes he had at her in the real world oh for sure she's attentive and chaste and loyal mm-hmm. and the perfect magazine cover mom you know yeah, yeah. she's she's good housekeeping in human form um. <laughs> <laughs> well also to, just to add on to that bit there's the childcare section but then there's also the thing about william h macy coming through the door 
putting his hat on the rack mm-hmm. in exactly the same way, saying, honey, I'm home, and she's there waiting with a cocktail. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just another form of childcare. Like, <laughs> like, honestly, her, like, her, her, her role with George is exactly the same as her role with the kids. It's so true. So she's, true. she's there to make sure he's fed. What's the moment that Sparks change for her? Is it when she sees Bill in the doorway? I think so, because the thing that directly leads to her changing colour is she's doing the dishes with Mary Sue and she says, what do you all do up there at Lover's Lane? Yeah. But I think it's seeing Bill in the doorway that sparks her need to ask that question. She is feeling the feelings that you can't describe about this man and she wants to know what it is that happens when you feel that feeling like what do you actually physically do about that feeling something has immediately changed because bill Bill never arrives at the doorstep that's not something that happens he's he's Mm. come specifically to tell bud that he locked up and i think there is something about she can see the change in him and there is something that sparks her curiosity and there's something sort of attractive to her in that change one of the things i i adore about that as well is what a positive role model Mary Sue is Mm. in that moment because I don't know just in terms of it being sex positive this film Mm. that moment is so important because it's so utterly without judgment it is so respectful and kind and gentle and loving but also you know she's like yeah this is what they do up at Lover's Lane but there's a different thing that you can do so then she she goes on to then uh, she masturbates in the bath Mm -hmm. turns or she suddenly starts seeing colours the tree goes on fire which is the town's first fire that scene where um david is trying to get the firemen to fight the fire and they don't know what to do because they've only ever rescued cats before yeah where's, yeah he's <laughs> running around the fire fire station shouting fire fire and then eventually he shouts cat and they just immediately leap to it <laughs> and then when they get there like it's david who's putting the fire out and and, and everything and um and there's still firemen just sort of going around where's the cat yeah like the concept of something burning down is a alien. The thing. guy with the hose who's like, oh, that's what this is yeah. for. <laughs> and then, um, of course, Betty turns full colour and she is so distressed that she sort of enlists David's help. And David is the one who comes up with the idea to use her makeup to cover it. And I love that moment when he first puts the makeup on her and you can still see that her eyes are green. It's such a tender scene. I think David learns something in this scene that he then takes back to the real world at the end of the movie. Yeah, When he's absolutely. with his mother. It's it's about... So I think, I think at the start of the film, David, as all children are, David has an attitude towards his mother that she doesn't need anything from him. He needs things mm. from her. And I think in this moment he sees... That actually, this mother figure does need love and support. And that is a lesson I think he takes back home yeah. with him at the end. Yeah, in that lovely scene that he's yeah. got with uh, Jane Kaxmerick. Yeah, so, oh, this, so yeah, this this scene. Oh, mm. God, that scene. Wax lyrical <laughs> about this scene, please. <laughs> what, the, the makeup scene? Yeah. Oh, God, it's so wonderful. It's So you've got the, William H. Macy is kind of calling through and it's exactly that thing about um, later in the film when she's left completely and he comes home and he's just walking around. He's just walking around the house going... Where's, Where's my, my dinner? dinner? <laughs> Where's my dinner? Where's my dinner? <laughs> Where's my dinner? It made me think actually of um, the play that goes wrong, the bit with a ledger. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. A ledger. Yes. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. it's just, if I keep saying it, it'll happen. <laughs> it will just arrive, yeah. 
and he's got that bit and it's similar to that where he just keeps being like honey where are you and it's almost like she knows that she's got plenty of time because he'll just keep saying it until she turns up it's almost like that moment they're suspended in time she oh god her performance in this scene is absolutely remarkable she's distressed and crying over the sick because she's turned color and it's interesting that she is able to share that vulnerability with her son effectively with bud yeah because that is a real departure from the status quo isn't it this idea that she kind of is a layered person but also that she is i feel like from that moment they establish a really kind of collaborative relationship because later when um when david punches that kid and turns color she gets her mirror out to show him and they have this kind of they're working together and it's almost like they sort of understand that this isn't a normal mother-son relationship there's something else at play here there's something else going on and he has the idea to cover her face with her makeup to make her go gray again so you've seen this kind of ritualistic layering on of the makeup which means that then later when we get the reverse of that scene and the removal of the makeup it it means so much more Mm. Mm. she's just terrified that people will see and they'll judge her yeah she's she's afraid of that and it's to do with again removing the fear Mm -hmm. getting rid of the fear and allowing someone to remove her makeup for her i think think there's a sort of a a guilt as well i don't don't think it's just the fear of others i think i think she's got a, a sort of shame over having enjoyed herself in the bath that is sort of mixed in there with her fear of mm. of what people will say. I think she thinks she's done something wrong and now she's in colour and she can't make that go away, which in that moment she does want it to go away. Later on, we'll we'll see in another wonderful scene that we'll come to. Oh. Mm, this film, yeah, man, yeah, this yeah. film. Yeah, so the, the makeup removal scene uh, between her and Bill. Oh, um, it's so beautiful. So should we chat a bit about Bill's journey to Let's this point. Let's chat about Bill. First. Yeah, I um, think so because I think a really important part of the makeup removal scene is the art book, which obviously has been planted earlier. Bill, played by the wonderful, not Jeff Bridges. No, Jeff Daniels. Jeff Daniels. The other one. Yeah. <laughs> the wonderful Jeff Daniels. One, one of, it's funny you said one, one of the things that I considered for next week um, was the uh, the Fabulous Baker Boys because I've never seen it. And yeah. Then I was like, oh, no, that's <gasps> Jeff Bridges. But um, the Fabulous Baker Boys is great i really like it it gave us the um the iconic woman in the red dress lying on top of a piano concept that's where that came from oh, i assumed that that predated that but yeah sure michelle pfeiffer the woman in the red dress but we're not here to talk about any of those people no we're talking about jeff daniels jeff daniels and his his hangdog expression he breaks your heart doesn't he that scene where david comes into work and um, he's just sat behind the counter going there are no cheeseburgers yeah. he's, he's having a full-on existential what's crisis the, what's the point it's so his <laughs> His journey is such an interesting one. The change in routine sparks something. Yeah. And then having to go back to that routine sends him off into this total existential crisis. Then David comes in with the picture book of all the artwork as a special gift and shows it to him. And even then he's reluctant because he's like, well, I'm never going to be able to paint like that. So what's the point? And it's the lesson he has to learn is one that's to do with like pleasure without an agenda. Mm. There doesn't have to be a point to anything. You can just do it because you love it. Yes. And that's the lesson he learns. And then he's like, if I... I wouldn't be able to go on living if I couldn't 
paint anymore. And yeah, Betty arrives at the diner. I don't know why she goes. It's because she notices that he's painted the window. That's right. Yes, of course. Um, And he's trying to do a colourful still life of a group of objects from the diner that haven't turned into colour yet. They're still grey. And so he's like, oh, it isn't going very well. And he shows her the book. And the particular moment in that that I'd like to focus in on is um, when they look at the... Is it a Picasso? Yeah, it's a Picasso. And it's very kind of blue. Blue, which absolutely becomes Betty's kind of signature colour. And it's a woman and he's like, look at her, look how beautiful she is reclining. And Betty says, oh, she's crying. And again, it's that thing that you were saying right at the beginning of our chat about how two people can look at something and get something totally different from it. And like the film itself is an example of this. But within the film, there's this moment where Jeff Daniels' character looks at that and just sees a beautiful painting of a woman Mm -hmm. reclining. Whereas Betty sees it and is like, that's a woman crying. And I think she recognises herself in that painting. She recognises her sadness. And she she probably literally recognises it as well. Um, It's not just an an internal thing that she's recognising. Jeff Daniels has never seen somebody cry. Bill has never seen somebody cry. Bill has never cried. God, wow. I hadn't even thought of that. Nobody cries there. Nobody's sad there. And I think that Betty not only recognises that her, her internal sadness I think she's seen tears come from her eyes in the mirror in fact we know that because she'd been she was crying in the previous scene with with uh, with David slash bud the whole point is that it's that, it, that it, it's messy and all of all of the wonderful things that this knowledge brings also brings like sadness and pain and anger as as we see as the film goes on so Bill turns around at that point and sees that she is crying and mm. the gray makeup is running and she realises that and wants to get out of there as quickly as she can. And then he just very gently, as gently as David applied the makeup, Bill removes the makeup. And it's so beautiful. And he, well, he says that. He says, you shouldn't cover this up. It's beautiful. Because their relationship is a romantic one. It is. We see a very brief flash of them have a bit of a smooch. Only very briefly. It's mostly implied. But it is actually, it's more about, again, that nugget of self-awareness and self-knowledge and understanding clicking into place and for her that's to do with on a very basic level it's more to do with the sexual awakening mm-hmm. um her transformation into color but for him he hasn't turned color discovering his painting it's that maybe being recognized by another person the recognition the acceptance of different emotions and the mm. understanding of different emotions it's all that scene is what kind of makes that click into place for him and turns him color and it turns the whole diner color it does. It's like that that experience with her means that he then suddenly can see everything in colour in his kind of world. And I love the use of the diner as a kind of hub for mm. the people who've turned colour, yeah. who uh, it's the kind of it's the centre of the rebellion. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, if, if we sort of want to talk about the iconography of the diner. So when they arrive in Pleasantville, uh, it says on the calendar 1958. And yeah, the iconography of the diner in the 50s, it was a hub of teenage culture and rebellion. All the rockabilly stuff and jukeboxes and burgers and milkshakes, all that good stuff, which you sort of have in a sanitised form in black and white in Pleasantville. But then as that youth movement takes off and sex appears mm. and that the unstoppable change takes place, the diner becomes a place that is just full colour. The kind of the emergence of the teenager as a kind of defined identity happened in the 50s. You hadn't really, the concept of the teenager didn't really exist before that. And it is a very much a rebellion against the kind of post-war austerity and the greatest generation who Mm -hmm. grew up with a set of kind of Edwardian values. And suddenly 
you know, the 1950s comes along, you've got rock and roll and people are dancing in a totally different way and they're um, socialising in a totally different way. Mm. And kind of teenagers, the first generation to have a little bit of spare money in their pocket mm. after kind of post-war austerity and they want to spend it on records and dancing and burgers and milkshakes and yeah. cherry coke. And um, it's terrifying to the adults quote unquote and yeah the status quo which was one of kind of the American dream really life liberty and the pursuit of happiness It's probably uh, worth at this moment sort of talking about the real world context of 1958 because actually there's there's so much that comes into play uh, sort of in the background of this film like most most prominently the uh, the civil rights movement the famous the famous bus boycott the Montgomery bus boycott which was uh, sparked mm. by the incident with Rosa Parks uh, took place on the yeah. 1st of December 1955 um so right. in real world 50s that is all the civil rights movement is really taking off. You've got the the McCarthy anti-communist hearings, uh, the suppression of artists, all of that kind of thing going on in the background. Goodness knows what was happening with gay culture at the time. So all of this stuff is sort of in the melting pot in the background, and none of it is touching the town of Pleasantville at all until David and Jennifer arrive. There's a moment when David slash Bud is running around with Margaret. So Margaret was supposed to bake cookies for a guy called Whitey, but she brought them to David instead as a sort of, David, you're really cool, you put out the fire kind of thing. And David accepts those cookies and gets into trouble from the TV repairman. From that moment, he and Margaret are hanging out and... Courting. Caught in, and they go up to Lover's Lane and get caught in the rain and all that sort of thing. And then there's that wonderful scene where he goes into the diner to go to work and everyone stops and stares at yeah. him. And um, Jennifer is like, um, they want to ask you something, but I didn't really know how to handle it. So I'm just going to leave it to you. And that's where David properly, fully steps into his role as the kind of instigator of change because he's the one who starts, he fills in the rest of the book. Yeah. Um, he tells them the story to loads of other books. He explains that there's a place outside side of Pleasantville yeah. and he's like this sort of um sort of like messiah mm-hmm. he's like this kind of the person who's there to kind of educate them all yeah. it's sort of like education and a prompt to transgress and push boundaries and act out and all of that sort of stuff and I love that scene but yeah so it's so David from that point also that's the proper moment where David fully kind of gives himself over to the pursuit of colour <laughs> yes he gets up the courage to ask out the girl and they have that what oh my god that shot Ed of them driving, to driving through the blossom with At Last by Etta James playing oh god it's just fucking <laughs> yeah, so you've got, gorgeous you've got the black cinema. and white apart from the pink blossoms just falling from the trees and you see them on the side of the car on the side of the car on the side of the car and then as they approach Lover's Lane you get that shot of the car going through the blossom coming down just that lovely pink mm. blossom the car's black and white everything's black and white and they drive into Lover's Lane and suddenly everything is in colour the grass is the greenest grass you've ever seen the car itself is now colourful everything is colourful apart apart from David at this point Um, and then it starts raining on them and they go and run and take shelter and David is showing all of the kind of teenagers that the rain is safe you get that uh, shot from the Shawshank Redemption Richard said to me he was like oh I'm really looking forward to hearing you and Ed discuss all of the different cinematic references because I mean there were probably loads that I I didn't even pick up on and I was like I can't really think of any cinematic references that I can think of aside from and he was like well apart from that shot from Shawshank 
which is definitely the shot from Shawshank, oh, yeah. right? And I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it is. <laughs> Everyone wakes up from having been asleep and they look over and see David is the only black and white thing you can see. And he's just sitting so sadly on the side of the lake because he hasn't turned colours yet. Yeah, at that moment, I was thinking like, I wonder what it's going to be. The thing that turns him. Or is he going to not turn colours at all? And is that going to be part of the point, you know? And yeah, as as we've discussed, it's that moment where he, he sort of rejects his last fears yeah. and becomes something close to his best self, his, his more authentic self. And uh, that is standing up against a, a kind of group of teenagers who are, they've been sort of whipped up mm-hmm. into this sort of frenzy of fear by the old boys in charge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that scene where, um, so William H. Macy comes home to an empty house and he doesn't know what to do and he's got that gorgeous thing he's like honey I'm home honey I'm home where's my dinner where's my dinner walking around and it's at the same moment that it starts to rain so the rain in that moment is it represents both this wonderful joyful liberation and this kind of embracing of new experiences but also it is absolute I think the literary term would be pathetic fallacy Ed where the weather mimics the, <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, the protagonist's emotions and William H Macy is walking through the rain and it's a terrifying thing Mm -hmm. it's something that's really frightening and scary and it has never rained in Pleasantville the only umbrella that Toby Maguire can get to give to his girlfriend is a prop from the school play (laughs) yeah but there's that wonderful scene in the um in the bowling alley where all of the men the men of the town they they hang around in the barber shop and they hang around in the bowling alley it's extremely funny how it's delivered but Mm. it is kind of covering a very serious point Mm. about um William H Macy says like she wasn't there. No dinner. And they're all like, oh, no dinner. Yeah. And then that guy shows his shirt that's got the burn from the iron yeah. in it. And it's like, she just said that she was thinking. Such and such's wife wants to get that new big bed they've been talking about. And the guy, the main guy who's got the most square hairdo. Are we talking JT Walsh? JT plays, Walsh. plays the mayor. Big, big Bob. Bob. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, say, he says you're safe now. Thank God you're in a bowling alley. Which is one of my favourite lines, I think, in anything. <laughs> so funny. And he's the one who says, like, where where's this change coming from? Mm. And he's the one who calls the town meeting and they come up with that amazing list of um, commandments. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, my bleeding heart liberal sensibilities, I'm very much like, well, the people who actually cause the issue are the people who incite violence against people who they perceive to be causing an issue. But actually, all the people who have turned colours, they're just merrily going along on their own, reading books and dancing and going to the diner. They're not actually hurting anybody. And it's the people who are afraid of the change who are the ones who actually do the violence. They do the disruption and the public unrest and they burn the books. They've smashed smashed up the diner at this point, haven't they? They yeah. put the bench through that, yeah. through that lovely painted window. It's so upsetting. During that section where they start trying to enforce the uh, the kind of code of conduct, mm. there is the most clear parallel to the civil rights movement with all the signs that start popping up, popping up saying no colours. Yeah. Ah, this, yeah, this was yeah. this was what Jem felt was the misstep in the screenplay mm. um, when uh, Whitey refers to Margaret as, uh, as being Bud's coloured girlfriend. Um, and yeah. Jem felt it was just a bit on the nose i know exactly where she's coming from but i kind of disagree just because i think 
in real world 1950s at this time, there was so much of that going on that I think actually at this moment it's quite important to like explicitly make that reference yeah. and let those two worlds bleed into each other. Um, so I, yeah, I think I think there's value in that. So Jim and I disagreed on that slightly. I think I'm with you. I mean, I do appreciate that it is very very clear. It's like a great big honking sign saying we're making a point. Yeah. But I think that the tone of the rest of the film they can afford to do that. It doesn't feel out of step with the rest of the film Mm -hmm. but also I think that when you're talking about something that is that abrasive Mm -hmm. that that is so upsetting and offensive Mm -hmm. you can be really blatant you can Mm -hmm. make the audience flinch make the audience recoil from it that's the other thing that is a moment where the audience does need to be made to recoil and I don't I don't know what other epithet would have been appropriate so they're kind of um you've set up the kind of us and them feeling of there's the people who are still in black and white Mm -hmm. and the coloreds as they say so they after this terrible act of vandalism and destruction on the diner there's this kind of mob who get together and go to the diner as their kind of safe haven sit there and they're smashed out yeah everything's sort of broken and smashed David reads out these rules that have been agreed upon by the people at the meeting which are supposed to be a middle ground these have been written by the people in charge to try and mediate yes and they couldn't be more repressive yeah they don't want to mediate they want it their way and that's where david becomes the face of the sort of revolution Mm -hmm. um where he's like no we're gonna play the music well it's uh jonathan off buffy turns the jukebox on and yeah the, one, one of the girls is like no he can't do that he can't do that anymore and David just goes sure you can it's so it's so casual the way he does it I really yeah really love that moment and that leads to David and Bill going and painting this incredible mural on the side of the town hall which is still black and white uh, and it leads to the kind of climax of the film which is this court scene before we get to the court scene itself there's one other scene that I wanted to highlight on that journey. So yeah, you've you've had that with David, Jennifer and Bill and uh, that rebellion they've been arrested. The scene I wanted to highlight that's going on at the same time is uh, the scene where Betty leaves George. Betty is now in colour. George, yeah. of course, is still black and white and George tries to lay down the law in just the saddest way imaginable. He tries to be quote-unquote a man. He tells Betty exactly how it's going to be from now on about his dinner being ready and on the table and... In the hands of another actor, it would be the, the, the scene would be a disaster. But William H Macy is so there's so much vulnerability in his performance, and there's so there's so much pathos there that you can't help but feel for him in this moment because you're just like this isn't going to get you anywhere. And indeed, Betty just says no, honey, no, sweetheart. That scene is so filled with love and regret and sadness and pathos, mm. like you say, it isn't overplayed. It's not. Um, it's not a loud scene and William H. Macy instead of him being kind of rageful or trying to throw his weight around and be loud and abrasive to kind of get that point across it's more like he just keeps repeating it because that's the script this is what you say and it should be working and it isn't so I'm going to try again and again and again and again and she's so gentle she says like no sweetheart that's not going to be the way this happens and she's like this is how you work the oven I'm going well the, the other thing he says is it goes away it'll go away referring to the colour. And she very pointedly she says, I don't want it to go away. Like she has fully embraced this change that has come from her. For her, that moment of I don't want it to go away, it's the same as when Bill says to David, like, I I don't know what I'd do if I couldn't paint anymore. Mm. And it's that thing about like, once you've realised you can't 
unknow. You can't unlearn you can't something. Unknow and it's something. like she's leaving him and she isn't leaving him for Bill. She's leaving him for herself. Mm-hmm. And I think the film manages that whole situation so well. It's so clear and so subtle and gentle. Yeah. And then I guess we get on to... Uh... Get onto the court scene. The finale. The whole film is so wonderful because it does. It manages to have pathos and manages to have the stakes be quite high, but it's all dealt with with such humour and good spirit. Like um, they're in this court scene, and the mayor is is reading out the charges, and David is like, "Why don't we get a lawyer?" He's like, "This town has no need of lawyers. <laughs> Which, There's never been a court case before." <laughs> no, doesn't he say? Doesn't he say? I think I think we'd like to keep things as pleasant as possible something like that <laughs> it's great and toby Maguire gets his kind of no you're out of order sir kind of courtroom moment where he basically through the power of his incredible speech you know he manages to turn the whole town in color by like inciting feeling and everything and it's it's great well, i've got i've got a little bit of that speech here so he he says i know you want it to stay pleasant around here but there are so many things that are so much better like silly or sexy or dangerous or brief. Um, and then he talks about how all of those things are inside you all the time. And that's what riles the mayor up. It's like, they're not in me. And he's like, yeah, yeah, of course it is, of course it is. And then he goes over to George, doesn't he? I really like it in isolation, but it was the bit that kind of stuck with me a little bit. It felt a bit sentimental. It felt that maybe that could have been handled in a slightly different way. The bit the, the bit where he goes over to George? Yeah. Okay. But only, I mean, not like it wasn't bad. It's just that I think it felt like, I mean, it's such a fine sort of tightrope that the film walks the whole it way really through is, tonally yeah. to make sure that it doesn't slip over. And that's a moment where it does feel like it slips over to me. That's interesting. Which is fine. You know, it's fine. It's not, it's not a big problem. I think the the moment itself is justified. I think it's important that George gets his moment of revelation and change. I absolutely agree. That could have happened without David and George having like a direct moment. Okay. And where with with it's it's David saying in front of the whole courtroom, and he's mm. he's so um, leading the witness is what he's doing. He really. is. He's yeah. like, don't you feel this? And don't you feel this? And don't you feel this? He's taking advantage of the fact they've never had a trial in Pleasant Mill. <laughs> exactly. We could have seen George have that moment without David needing to go and force it out of him mm. in front of everyone. Do you know what I mean? I don't know where such a thing would fit in the movie. You'd have to have a whole bunch of other stuff. I'd have David making his big speech, and but I instead of focusing on David and the big speech, mm. we'd hear the big speech and we'd see George doing all that working out, you know? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that could work. It's, it's not a moment I've ever had a problem with, I've got to say, but yeah, I, I get where you're coming from. And then... Uh, Big Bob gets absolutely furious and screams into David's face. Um, And as he does that, the colour rises. And I think it's the first time we've actually seen the change happen. The colour rises in his face. And then all of a sudden, everything is colour. He floods with colour. And you get that moment that is, I think, definitely reminiscent of the moment in The Wizard of Oz, where they come out of the courtroom and they open the door and the whole town is now in colour. Yeah, for sure. He can go home now. David can go home. Pleasantville now is a part of the world. There's the TV in the shop is showing pictures of the Sphinx and, you know, all this sort of stuff from Egypt. Wow, what is going on there there's a bus that leaves town yeah exactly well yeah. we've not actually covered um the geography of pleasantville oh yeah <laughs> a wonderful scene in the school early on uh, where the teacher explains that uh, on main street there are shops and on elm street there are houses so main street's geography is different to elm street's geography <laughs> and jen's asking so what what's at the other end of main street uh, to which the answer is huh 
get to the end of Main Street and you're just right back at the beginning again. It's so funny. And now <laughs> that everything is in colour and they've embraced change and the world, there is the whole world yeah. outside of Pleasantville is available to those people mm-hmm. in Pleasantville should they want to be a part of it. David arrives back home and um, you see the TV repair guy in his van and he drives off all satisfied. Mm-hmm. Like... All of that was his intention all along. Yeah. It was all a fairy tale for David, mm-hmm. really. It was all about David going on his journey, learning his lesson and coming back yeah. a changed person to live a more fulfilling life. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, we we sort of touched on it briefly. You get that really nice scene between him and his real mother that echoes that scene between him and Betty back in Pleasantville. She's crying, her mascara's running. She talks about how she, how she had been so focused on having the right house and the right car. And he just says, that there is no right house. There is no right car. David has come to an understanding that, that life is messy and it's supposed to be messy. And that's actually, mm. that's actually a good thing if you embrace it. And her makeup's all estate. And she's like, oh God, I must look estate. And he's like, you don't, you look great. Yeah. And it's kind of like, you look great because you look like you. Like you look like your authentic self and that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Yeah. And they have this lovely moment of sort of understanding between the two of them. And it's um, that for me is a really satisfactory end to all of that. I'll tell you what I don't find satisfactory. I don't like the return to Pleasantville end. That little The coda. final, final end. I don't like the coda. The three of them on the bench. I don't like it. My The nub of my irritation is to do kind of with the way the camera and the editing all works together. Mm-hmm. Because you've got William H. Macy and... Um, Joan Allen sat together on the bench as Betty and George. And George says, what now? And she says, I don't know. And then they laugh. And then the way that it's edited, it looked to me like George turned into Bill. Like maybe they'd been the same person the whole time. No. So the, my, my issue with it is that it made me go, what? <laughs> I, I get that. I, 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 don't think, I don't think it's edited. I think it's, I think it's one camera movement. So the, 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 the camera is on Betty and then it's on George. And then it goes back to Betty, her response. Mm-hmm. And then it goes back and it's Bill there. But it's, that's, that's all one camera movement. I don't think those shots are edited. So the idea is that she's having two different conversations with these two different men and they don't know what they don't know what the future holds and that's that's satisfactory for them i don't know it felt to me like they didn't have enough courage to end the film with david and his mum but they didn't quite know what to do instead so they just had this sort of weird vague bench scene where everybody's just sort of non-specifically laughing yeah i get what you mean i I don't think it's entirely satisfactory i don't think that moment quite works because it's not it's not really clear it's not really clear what's going on but maybe that's the point the whole idea is that you're not supposed to really know what the future holds things aren't necessarily supposed to be clear and tie up neatly like they do in a sitcom i mean the rest of the film i thought worked absolutely fantastically and i think it was a bit like it was like having a shit pudding (laughs) god i've had an absolutely stonking meal Mm. i've really enjoyed it and then i've had a i've had a shit pudding that's left a bit of a weird taste in my mouth that kind of overrides all of the gorgeous stuff i've had before and i walk away kind of going like oh that's a shame is it uh, is it a whole dessert or is it more like one of the um, little sort of chocolate mints that they bring with the bill and you've opened it and oh it's actually a little bit off so it's got a little bit sort of white and pale in places and you make the mistake of eating it anyway and you're like oh now I had lovely oh, delicious curry flavours going on now I've just got that's horrible 
you thought it was going to be a lovely milk chocolate with a bit of mint mm-hmm. in and then it, you turned out it was dark chocolate and you're like oh no oh shit yeah. i wish i hadn't put that in my mouth yeah, i mean d- dark chocolate's the best chocolate so <laughs> it isn't you are you are just wrong you're only saying that because you don't enjoy being happy no i i say it because um i know the deeper happiness of loving dark chocolate oh i see so you're saying that my life is still black and white and yours has gone into color now, exactly eh? <laughs> i see <laughs> God, I love this film. <laughs> I am I'm really, really glad that I've seen it again. I love it. I would love to watch it in like full HD. Cause I bet it's because I mean, you know, it, it was the link, but we didn't really we haven't really talked about the visuals that much. I mean, obviously the change from black and white to colour is, is an important thing, but I just the the effect of having black and white and colour images all existing on the same frame together is so beautiful. I did have I've I've had a tiny look about how they achieved that. Cause I was interested <laughs> in like, did they film it all in colour and change it what did they do according to this is from our friend Wikipedia <gasps> they shot it on 35mm and then they digitised every single frame of that 35mm footage and then kind of chose what they wanted to change and desaturate and contrast the colour and change it all and it's like the first time that's ever happened so this yeah. was kind of pioneering new technology really it sort of reminds me of how they originally colorized films back in the early 20th century where it would be like just individual things in frames like the phantom of the opera's cape just being colored in red frame by frame painstakingly it sort of makes me think of of the original way of doing that are you ready to tell me what we're going to watch next week yeah i think so <laughs> i you sure uh, well I, um what was that pause for was that because you weren't quite sure what you're going to if choose? i'm perfectly honest it has come down to the wire <laughs> uh, and yeah i i sort of been back and forth there's nothing that's really jumped out at me like oh yeah that's definitely what we're watching so yeah i have made a choice i'm gonna stick to it come what may <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay, so first of all, I'm going to try and guess what Ed has chosen. I'm going to say what I would have chosen and then Ed's going to reveal what he has chosen. Um, I'm going to keep it fairly brief. This week, I would have followed Joan Allen because I think she's fucking great and we'd have watched Face Off. We just would have, Ed. (laughs) Because there is so much to unpack about that movie. It's one of my favourite films. I can't tell if I think it's shit or not. I can't tell if I think it's like actually shit but enjoyable for that reason or if it's like deliberately shit it's it's just the whole thing to me is completely baffling I don't don't think it's deliberately shit (laughs) and I think so many doves so many doves (laughs) (laughs) Um, no I think uh, John Woo doesn't make shit movies he he makes the movie that he sets out to make and he doesn't set out to make a shit movie he sets out to make a bonkers explosive action movie and I think he achieves that with Phase Off (laughs) which I don't don't think it's shit Uh, I also don't think it's what we're watching next week unfortunately okay As far as what I think you've chosen, I tell you, the type of film that we haven't really covered yet is like a proper action movie. And so I did wonder if we might follow Joan Allen and have um, have a look at The Bourne Identity, which would be a total kind of a different a different type of film to anything that we've watched so far. Really, Mm. Um, a kind of spy beat em up, gritty, drive your car kind of film which could be interesting. Um, I'm judging from your response that that isn't what you've gone for. No, um, I didn't even think of the Bourne films, to be honest. The one that I'm going to put my money on, and again, I'm not convinced, but I'm going to put my money on, is a film that is tonally and thematically 
not entirely dissimilar. A film that deals with a sort of fake utopia that then the characters are trying to break free from. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wondered if we might be looking at The Truman Show. Hmm. Um, I did think about that. Um, But yeah, it's it's slightly too... Quite a woolly connection, that, though. Um, Maybe we're following Gary Ross and watching Seabiscuit, Ed. (laughs) No, we're not doing that. (laughs) 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 Although we could have uh, followed Gary Ross and watched Big. Yeah, that is true. And I know how much you love that performance. So, yeah, that would be appropriate. Mm. Um, But no, Ed, um, what are we we doing? Well... (sighs) It's quite a difficult one, this one. Like, I thought about following uh, William H. Macy and watching Boogie Nights. I briefly thought about following Jeff Daniels and watching Dumb and Dumber. I would have been so upset <laughs> if you'd chosen that. Yeah, no, I, 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 don't, I don't think we would have had a nice chat about that. <laughs> My instinct, what I really wanted to do, follow Reese Witherspoon, because I think she's terrific. And I thought, oh, like the first thing I lighted on was Legally Blonde. She's sort of in a similar headspace character-wise in Legally Blonde, certainly at the start of Pleasantville. It's a, it's a similar sort of thing. And then I was uh, sort of torn between Walk the Line, which she won an Oscar for, and uh, Wild, which I think was the first film that her production company made um, that she was nominated for an Oscar for. Um, and I settled on Wild until about two minutes ago. Oh my God, what a roller coaster! When you pointed out <laughs> that we've not done a big full on action movie yet, in which case we're going to watch uh, something that I also considered in my process. We're going to follow Paul Walker and watch The Fast and the Furious. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited about that. Oh, maybe I'll watch all of them. (laughs) I'm also excited because neither of us have seen it. So we're going in kind of cold. Yep, going in completely cold. It is available on uh, Now TV Cinema. If you've got the uh, movies package for Now TV, um, then it's available there. It's also available to rent at all of the usual places. Uh, So Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, and yeah, YouTube, all of that sort of stuff. So that's what we're going to watch. (laughs) So pumped. That's amazing. Oh my God. Yeah, I'm going to go into it with no preconceived notions throw out of my head all of the ideas of what i think the fast and the furious is out of my brain i almost can't think what i think it is do you know what i mean like i almost have Mm. no idea i'm sort of expecting something not dissimilar to what we would have got had we watched face off I'm, i'm expecting something big and preposterous and daft but i'm absolutely ready to be uh proven wrong okay thank you all very much indeed for listening to this week's episode of the unbreakable movie chain if you have liked what you've heard please do write in uh you can find all of the details in the show notes um get in touch through social media and all that sort of business um if you didn't enjoy the episode please also get in touch and tell us exactly why in your most most forthright possible tone um also tell your friends again if you hated it tell your enemies we don't care so long as people are listening we're happy um <laughs> we'll find our people <laughs> um, uh, all that's left to say really is uh, we hope you join us for uh, our next episode which will be the fast and the furious and uh, yeah we love you bye-bye bye bye bye, bye.